Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with Hal Ashby's The Last Detail. Welcome to Praising Kane, everyone. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell. And with me, as always, is my co-host and personal demon, Doug Tilly. Doug, how are you doing? How's life? What's it like up in the uh, Great White North where you've defeated COVID and moved on with your lives in a socialist paradise? Yeah, we're we're watching you with some trepidation uh, down in the United States. Not you specifically, Liam, but uh, your brethren in that country that you owe so love. Uh, look, I don't want to talk too much about it because A, it's going to date us horribly, and B, it's just a depressing topic generally. Uh, but as we move into September uh, and as schools come back, everyone is concerned here. Like here where the numbers are not like they are there, everyone is very concerned. It's the hot topic. How are people going to go back to school? I work at a university, so I don't even know if I'm going to have a job in September. Uh, so it's it's there's still a lot of big questions happening, but... Those questions are happening here, and then I think about the U.S., and it's just like, how can you possibly be dealing with those same questions? So, uh, Liam, I'm I'm glad that your daughter is young enough that maybe it's not as much of an issue uh, right now, but I worry for parents, for sure. Well, I mean, luckily, we enrolled her. We, we weren't sure what we were going to do when we moved here, and we ended up enrolling her in an early learning center, which, because of the age group uh, who they work with, has much stricter enforcement of uh, various kinds of uh, health codes already. So Mm -hmm. they're able to operate under state law because they know and can trust that they have this sort of control that they can implement stuff. Whereas at the same uh, place, they have a preschool, which is a little bit less of a control program. And besides it not being the full day, they also don't have the same restrictions. So they can't open because uh, oh. they're tied to the school system. And so, uh, and honestly, I'm glad they can't because that would just be more kids, more bodies in the building with my daughter, which I don't want, instead of what she has, which is a, a room of six kids who wear masks all the time, which is like a much more manageable thing. Um, uh, but yeah, the school system here just decided not to open, uh, which is crazy because school here usually starts uh, Monday. So... <laughs> They gave parents less than a week, so you know it is what it is. Uh, but you know, I'm I'm just living my life here, Doug. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the last detail. Uh, but before we do that, we wanted to bring up uh, a little bit of Carol Kane related news, Doug. Mm, big uh, news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it is for those of us who are willing to give our money to boutique Blu-ray uh, producers because Vinegar Syndrome is uh, going to be releasing 1982s. Pandemonium. Now, Doug, have you seen uh-huh. Pandemonium? I have not. I've only ever seen the trailer for it. It was. It's funny when I was a, a teenager getting into horror movies, and particularly there was a period where I was super into horror comedy. And I think a lot of enthusiasts of horror, you know, when they're getting into Evil Dead Two and Brain Dead and Reanimator and stuff like that, you're like, this this can go so right. And then you watch a bunch of terrible horror comedies and like, this can go so wrong. But I was really into that period in the early 80s with like mm-hmm. student bodies and Saturday the 14th and, you know, the horror spoofs of that time period. And Pandemonium was one of those movies that was always included with it. 
And I was always really interested because of the cast, which included Paul Rubens and Phil Hartman. I guess they would all have come from the Groundlings. Um, so that, that kind of comedy is something I had a lot of interest in as well. So I, I am very curious to check it out. And of course, we love Vinegar Syndrome and we love the work that they do. So uh, the uh, I'm, I'm glad that a movie that I've only ever heard of tangentially is now getting a real release. And of course... I'm also enthusiastic about it because Carol Kane is in it. Yep, she's part of an insane cast, which I, I've never seen Pandemonium. I had no idea. Judge Reinhold, Phil Hartman, Tom Smothers, Paul Rubens, Tab Hunter. I, I'm I'm sort of impressed here. <laughs> I had heard, I'd seen the cover. This is one of those movies that you hear about. In, fa- in fact, I, I may have seen a trailer before too, but I've never like seen it for sale or stream you know what i mean i've never had an opportunity to actually see it but i've been aware of it for a very long time so yeah um, absolutely yeah uh i also wasn't aware that it was uh directed by uh alfred sole who did uh alice sweet alice which is one of my favorite horror films so uh, well the other thing about it that makes me interested is that tom smothers plays a mountie in it so maybe there's some sweet canadian content for me to to dip into well, that sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> we here at Prison Kane tend to focus on Carol Kane's uh, filmography, her her uh, work in um, actual movies. Uh, however, between today's uh, film, The Last Detail, and the film we'll be covering on the next episode, there was a TV appearance which I did not manage to catch. Doug, were you able to watch her appearance on? Uh, is it uh, We the Women? So it, it's kind of unusual. I, I, I think it's important for us to bring it up uh, because I do think we are going to dip into her television work eventually. This is a particularly obscure one, but since we're going chronological, I think it's important for us to mention it. So the American Parade was a series of TV specials, I guess, which focused on aspects of American history. Uh, I think at least some of the episodes of this series are lost media. They are not available in any capacity. I don't think there's any home release for this at all. But the very first episode, which was hosted by Mary Tyler Moore, is available to watch right now on YouTube. We'll actually link it in the show notes. And it's called We the Women. And it's about the American suffrage movement in the 1920s. Uh, And so (laughs) Carol Kane appears in this as Susanna White, uh, one of the people who were on the Mayflower who came to America, uh, we see her for literally four seconds as she gives birth to someone on the Mayflower, and that is the entirety of her role. Uh, because it's so obscure, because uh, it, her part in it is so small, I don't think it's worthwhile for us to cover it outside of what we're just talking about right now. Uh, it also, it's kind of a cheesy program from what I saw of it. I watched about 10 minutes of it. It just seems very much of its time. I mean, you know, well-meaning in terms of, of its focus on women's rights and things like that, but it, it is kind of silly um, and does not have much Carol Kane content. And though we have covered things already that also do not have a lot of Carol Kane in it, I do think the film work is the thing we're going to be focusing on most strongly. So for anyone who goes through their, her IMDb profile and it's like, hey, they missed this, they skipped this, we're talking about it right now. The American Parade, we are we the women, it's on YouTube, and you can take a look at it. Well, thank you, Doug, for uh, doing the work to make sure that we mentioned that. Um, I was not going to watch it, so I appreciate I'm a stickler for detail, Liam. That's what I'm known for. Well, are you a stickler for the last detail? Because that's what we'll be talking about today. <laughs> 1973's <laughs> The Last Detail, directed by Hal Ashby, starring Jack Nicholson. Uh, yeah, so we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back to dive into <laughs> The Last Detail. How was... 
Where's Wet Honey? Well, you got off to a shaky start. After that, you took to it like a duck to water. I don't know if I have enough money to go again. But I'll pay you what I have just to look at you. Just to what? Look at you. Two Navy men are ordered to bring a young offender to prison, but decide to show him one last good time along the way. <laughs> it's 1973's The Last Detail, directed by Hal Ashby, who you may know from such films as Harold and Maude, Shampoo, Coming Home, being there. I'll be honest, I've only seen Harold Maude and Being There. I've never seen Shampoo or Coming Home. I probably should. Uh, and I had never seen The Last Detail before we watched it for this very podcast. Screenplay by Robert Town. Uh, he was part of the new Hollywood wave of filmmaking. You might know him for his screenplay for Chinatown. Based on the book, The Last Detail, by Daryl Ponixon. Uh, you know, this is one of those classic Jack Nicholson films. Um, a, a lot of times when I've had this conversation with people about Jack Nicholson, they want to talk to me about, I don't know, Wolf or something. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and, and I've always known that it's really more of his earlier work that really uh, lets Jack Nicholson shine. And I'm glad to have finally seen this. I've known about this movie for a long time, which is, unfortunately for me, true of a lot of Hal Ashby movies. I've been interested in Hal Ashby. I haven't done the work to get uh, some of his less available films to me. And uh, I'm glad to finally get to see this uh, as well because um, this is one of those Randy Quaid performances that helps you know how Randy Quaid ended up being someone that people <laughs> cared about and not just a crazy man who put videos of himself having sex on the internet. So uh, before we get to any of that, though, uh, Doug, what did you think of The Last Detail? I loved it. Oh, boy. You know, it's funny. I know that, that you have a bit kind of mixed feelings on Jack Nicholson as a performer, but I've seen a lot of his 70s performances, not just the big ones, but, you know, well, I guess, yeah, I guess they're almost all are big after Easy Rider, but like five easy pieces, and we talked about Colonel Knowledge here on this show, and certainly One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in Chinatown, that sort of thing. I don't think, he, I don't know if he was ever as good as he is here. He is unbelievable in this movie. Yep. Um, he is just this fireball of energy and conflict. And boy, he is quite something. I love that they introduce him and has kind of a, in the very first scene where he's kind of this sleepy and he's like falling asleep and he's, it's like, oh, maybe he's not going to have that much energy in this movie. And then he wakes up and he's basically just blasting. And it's, it's like, he is, he's on a kind of a next level here. Uh, so I really love the movie. I uh, if this is one I've always meant to to catch up with. I do love Hal Ashby. I love Shampoo and being there and Harold and Maude. Uh, his his unfortunately truncated career, but ha he has a lot of incredible movies in there. Um, and this is really just kind of a three person movie, as you said in the plot description. We have Jack Nicholson's Baruski, um, and him and uh, Otis Young, uh, who plays. I guess he, he's known as Mule in the movie, and Jack Nicholson's character is known as Badass. But Badass and Mule, they're kind of lifer Navy guys, and they have to bring Randy Quaid's Meadows 
um, up north to go to jail. And he's going to jail for eight years for stealing all of $40. Um, but he stole it from a charity thing. But just kind of a minor crime. He didn't even get away with the money or anything like that. That that And they recognize, and they recognize kind of further as, as they get less detached from this character... Now, there's injustice here, so they become committed to showing him a good time, knowing that this might be the last opportunity for a very long time for him to experience any of this, if ever. Um, and as they do that, they kind of grow closer to them. There's more companionship among them, and they get kind of more angry and frustrated by the fact that they are part of the system that has forced this guy to lose like eight years of his life, and they know it's unfair, and they can't do anything about it, and then they're just kind of... They're kind of acting out against the world, and it's a very rebellious movie. There's kind of a punk attitude at it. I don't know if you, you'll you balk at that, but I do think that it's on display here. Uh, and it's also a travelogue, um, but it very much is about these three characters and the way that they see the world. I want to bring up Otis Young for a moment uh, as as the uh, – he, he's a black character in it, uh, which it, you know is – important for how he sees the world and and they do bring it up throughout it but i want to bring him up specifically because a i think he's great in it he has to be kind of a counterpoint to jack nicholson's performance and i think he's really really strong here and b because his career fizzled out almost immediately after this and i think that's a real shame yeah i think jack jack nicholson and randy quaid get a lot of the attention for their performances here but i think he's amazing i also want to bring up that this is a really it's not a beautiful movie it's actually kind of ugly looking but very kind of intentionally so uh and the way it's shot is not flashy at all but those slow fades between scenes it really i mean it's not that it's a necessarily a slow-paced movie because i don't think that at all but there is something really mesmerizing about that as you see these things kind of play out uh and it gives you kind of those extra moments to kind of think about what these characters are you know uh what they think about their own circumstance and how trapped they might feel uh even as they are there are moments of pure joy and a lot of of humor in this movie as well i agree with a lot of what you just said uh, I want to say uh, concur about Otis Young. There's two big points I wanted to go over real quick. Um, I'm trying to think which one to start with. Uh, let's talk, since you brought him up, let's talk a little bit about Otis Young and about uh, Hal Ashby and what strikes me in, in at least one other of his films, as I said, I haven't seen a lot of his films, as a... Um, maybe subtle way to address race. Mm -hmm. uh, it is really clear in this film that both Jack Nicholson and Otis Young are what they refer to as lifers. You know, they're not, they're not doing a run in the Navy for a quick, you know, something to do to move on with their lives, that the Navy is an opportunity for them only in very subtle ways held partly by the, I think the strong performance by Otis Young does the film point out that, they are in this situation for very different reasons. Right. Um, and, and this ties into my second point a little bit, but uh, I'll get to that in a second. That for Otis Young, for the character uh, Mule, he the, the Navy is an opportunity to live different and to be someone different. And we see this a little bit in him talking about his experience with uh, Baduski. Podesky, mm -hmm. as I thought they were saying it, but it's actually Podesky. Uh, but also, when his brief interaction with these white liberals, uh, mm -hmm. that they meet these hippies, basically, and 
you know, they're here challenging him on Nixon and asking him about black officers. And my man is just happy to be doing something else. We find out later he still supports his mom. You know, yeah. he, 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 he can't even imagine being married because he still has to, like, financially support his mom back home on a, on a Navy petty officer salary. My man is not a colonel or something, you know, like he is he is the, you know. But down. he doesn't say it in like a, he he doesn't say it in like in a sad way. Not at he, all. He, he, the Navy has put respect on his right. name, right. and that's that's right. That that's what kind of defines him, and that's why he he you know he's hesitant. I think in that situation with those white liberals who are like, yeah, say something about Nixon, right? Yeah, They're like what? Yeah. And yeah. but but even then, you know, there is that moment where he says that there's not a lot of black Navy officers because a white man has a recommend him for yeah. it. So. The race is always in the background, certainly. The, sort of the well, racism is in the background. And I think this is one of the things people miss about being there. Like, I remember when I was teaching being there in a, in a high school class when I was doing some long-term substituting. And I was doing research. And the number of reviews that think Hal Ashby is ignoring the race question in that movie – as opposed to being like, no, like he's making a deliberate decision to continually remind you that while uh, Gar- you know, uh, Chauncey Gardner is like failing his way upward because he's stupid and white, all of these other folks around him are not getting the same opportunities, often because they are black, and I that it's like an intentional thing, and yet. Even at the time, let alone now, people missed it because it was subtle. Um, I think that's kind of what's going on here. There's a reason that uh, he chooses to tell us certain things about Mule from a book I'm assuming is a lot longer and probably has a lot more details in it about who these characters are. He's chosen specific things, I think, for a reason. I think that's intentional right. on his point. Uh, which brings me back, though, to the what I, my point about the Jack Nicholson character. It'd be really easy to look at the advertising for this film and think, Oh, well, this is because Jack Nicholson is Jack Nicholson. So, of course, the focus is on him. But I would suggest that as strong as Otis Young is as a performer and as important Mule is, in a lot of ways, this movie is about uh, Badooski (laughs) more than it is about the other two characters. Yeah, absolutely. It's very much about the dichotomy like that the kind of guy who would stand up to a racist bartender or who would go out of his way to try to make this kid have a good time would also be unreliable would also start stupid fights in the bathroom at the bus stop would you know what I mean like the dichotomy the 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 strange sort of contours of who this person is is a lot of the drama of this movie. You could say like the drama is their conflict over what's going to happen to Meadows, but it's often more about Baduski's drama about what's going to happen to Meadows. Well, there's this great moment right where where Jack Nicholson's character he they're in a bar. They're they're already kind of locked into helping Meadows have a good time. So yeah. initially, the plot that plot is based around they're going to rush him. They're going to rush Meadows to this um, to this jail. And then they're just going to kind of chill out and spend their per diem as they spend a week getting back. But as they leave and as they get to know him, they just, that plan changes pretty quickly. But there's this great part where they're in a bar and Jack Nicholson is drunk and he's playing darts against this guy for money. And <laughs> he, if he loses, they're going to be out all their money, and they're not even going to be able to afford to get to the place they need to go, and they could get into massive amounts of trouble. He ends up winning, but like the movie, it could could switch at that moment, right, to being something completely different. And it's so funny that like the the fear for these characters, 
about doing things. It's about, you know, it's their ass. You know, if they do this, it's going to be their ass. And Jack Nicholson's character seems completely uninterested in whether something is going to be his ass or not. That said, though, there there are still lines that he's obviously unwilling to cross, right. even when, even as he pushes that to the very limit. Right. But I think it's it's worth noting that in a, in a way that I don't think is just because of his performance, I think it's written into the story that he is the because of because of his emotional his unwieldy emotional state, which those emotions are both the benefit and the detractor for his friends. You know what I mean? Right. Like his two companions here, Mule, who has to like sort of back him up in ways that he doesn't feel comfortable with, and Meadows, who's just at his fucking whimsy, because what else is not just because he's their prisoner, but also because he's a kid who has no idea what the world is about, who right. clearly is without a rudder. Um and then what becomes interesting is that uh even though I feel like the story is so focused on Jack Nicholson's character, it turns out Meadows is the one who has something of an arc, who has something of a like a change go through his sure. life. Now, in that understanding, it kind of ends on a sour note for our man because <laughs> he's still going to go out and spend eight years or six years, I guess, maybe <laughs> in the brick. So, you know, whatever. But it, it's just interesting how so much of the movie is the whims of Baduski, and yet Meadows is the one who is growing and changing because of the world around him. I mean, the, the cha- he has to grow up very quickly, right? Because right. he doesn't have a lot of time. One of the things I read in some of the, the reviews of this movie, and it, it's something that, that I've really been focusing on, is that this movie feels like it's constantly running out of time. Because right. the, even though they're, they're kind of meandering and they're going through all these locations and they're, experience, you know, they're eating together and they're getting hot dogs and stuff like that, you know that there's an endpoint and they have to be, you know, there's a countdown to they have to be at this location at this time. And when they get there, life is over pretty much, at least for the foreseeable future for Meadows. So, so you know, when when you're watching things, you're, you're constantly aware that the clock is ticking down and that's kind of hanging over all the things that you see. And they, they do let, let that play out sometimes too, right? Where you, especially in the first half where Meadows will start crying and he tries to escape on the, on the train at that one time and they have to pull him back. Um, the, one of the things that really strikes out as well is, of course, that the crime that Meadows is, is – he does. I mean he, he admits that he, he's at fault is such a minor crime. And the penalty is so huge, and you see uh, Baduski do like these crazy things that he probably should be arrested for. Right. Um, and and maybe you know it feels like it's just a matter of time before he gets someone catches up to him as well, and he's not feeling really any consequences for it at all. Uh, I wonder how much Baduski is supposed to be seeing himself in Meadows or. Or if it's more just along the lines of what I mentioned at the beginning, this frustration at the system that has allowed this fairly, you know, really a real innocent. I mean, he totally is innocent to to basically lose this huge chunk of his life for a very minor infraction when you know it, it could just as easily have happened to to a mule or Badowski. I think in that way, though, it works as a maybe not metaphor, but a reminder of this larger system, right? Like these two dudes feel this pain of Meadows and it has nothing to do with them. And if they try to step in and change it, it's just going to ruin their lives. You know what I mean? Like everyone who is actually responsible in any real way is absent from the movie. Even if you want to take the tact of like, well, maybe Meadows is a 
as a as a result of his upbringing. Well, they can't find his mom. You know what I mean? Like it, it, sure. it's like everyone who has any sort of actual authority or responsibility is just gone, and it's just these three dudes trying to figure it out. And not that they're heroic. I think it's very clear that like for every way that Baduski is charming, he is also a liability. And yeah. and in and in a real way, we get that from Mule. That's what's so great about Mule is that like Mule is both inspired by Baduski and chides him like a fucking child. You know exactly because Baduski is Baduski is like like a ball of rebellion, right? And right. that's the kind of character right. that Jack Nicholson is kind of best known for in a lot of his seventies roles, where he's, he's just like he's yeah, but he's nuanced in a way. He's not just exactly. he's got so many layers and so much of what's going on there is clearly motivated by pain that he's not relating. His mm-hmm. hyper masculinity is like does not feel real at all. It feels so performative the whole movie, uh, and and only Jack Nicholson. Only Jack Nicholson can do this at this point is this character of like when he's at his worst, his most just jerk off is some of the times where I'm most inclined to like laugh at him. You know what I mean? Yeah, like absolutely. there's a few moments where you're just like, what the fuck is this dude's problem? But I'm like smiling, you know, the the, the when he goes to that party with the young liberals yep, who yep. he is chatting up Nancy Allen in a very early role. And he thinks he's laying down this bullshit line that is working, and she is so uninterested and clearly bored. Uh-huh. And he thinks he's doing so well, which is, I. It's so important that that moment is in this movie to realize that the movie also realizes that, that there is an edge of patheticness to this character. Right. That he, you know, he isn't just this cool rebellious guy. He's also kind of sad, and that sadness comes through at times, and confused as well. I mean. The other moment that that I, that really stands out for me is when they talk about how, uh, well, they 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 basically have this barbecue in the cold. And that's another thing. This movie is a very cold movie because it takes place during the winter, and they're in this park and they're cooking hot dogs without buns, um, and they there's this kind of moment of contemplation. Randy Quaid is sitting by himself, and then you have Baduski and a mule, and they're sitting together and. Baduski, it just kind of, it just comes out. The thing that he's obviously been thinking a long time is just like, when he goes to the brig, when Meadows goes to the brig, they're going to eat him alive, right? That this is basically the end for him. At the beginning of the movie, he's gonna, he was like, oh, he's going to basically enjoy it. That the world doesn't make sense to a guy like him. And this allows him to just uh, get to the worst part first. But he knows that's not really true. That this is just going. He's going to be a changed person. Whatever kind of naivety or innocence that Meadows has, he's not going to be having that six or eight years from now when he walks out of that prison. And at that moment, as a viewer, you're like, "Are they going to let him go? Could they possibly let him go?" And then the movie, of course, answers that question immediately. That no, that whatever sympathy they have for him, that 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 was never a question. He might have ran away, and he might have gotten away, uh, and maybe if he did it at the right time. But uh, they are not going to – What? even if they're sympathetic to it, even if they kind of wish that he c- could get away, the system that they are a part of will not let them let that happen. Well, and I think it's also true that their sympathy and desire to treat him a certain way – comes from the deep knowledge that they couldn't you you know they have to do all these things for him because they know he's going and they're never going to let him go like that is Mm -hmm. part of the the motivation here uh a a quick aside i want to talk about how weirdly uh autobiographical this movie is for me 
Oh, interesting. I lived in Norfolk, so I was very familiar with the uh, with the Navy base there. Uh, and then I often I didn't I wouldn't say often I drove more often, but a few times <laughs> I took the train from Norfolk up the coast. Uh, and then they take a break in Philly, which, as listeners know, is uh, sort of my hometown. And then they went over to Camden, which is the town next to where my mom lives. And so that was weirdly familiar. Familiar enough that I'm a little bit skeptical that they filmed in Camden because I, I don't I don't know if that was really Camden or not. And then they, they, did, they did film at least part of this in Toronto, which I recognized yes. when I was watching it. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought is that they these places were not. But just like the idea of like, oh, I've you know, I've been in Norfolk. I've taken that train up, been taken the train up through to new york all that stuff it was a little weird you know it wasn't until they're supposedly in boston although that looked like a lot of neon for boston i'm just going to put that out there but uh (laughs) but assuming that they really were in boston that's when i'm starting to be like well i don't really know anything about boston so but you know all all that stuff before that was kind of weird like i think i've done this like trip that they're on it's kind of a strange experience to be watching (laughs) Um, so the taxi the taxi driver by the way in boston um he was the cinematographer, a very famous cinematographer on this movie, Michael Chapman, who also went on to be the cinematographer for Taxi Driver, no, <laughs> Scorsese's yeah. film. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, so uh, that was that was a weird experience. But I gotta say, you know, uh, I really want to talk so much about how Jack Nicholson kind of carries this movie because of how important his character is for like the movements. But I, I mean, but they I, put him, they put him front and center on the poster. They knew how important yeah, he was in this movie. But I do think you're right, not only to bring up uh, Otis Young, but also uh, Randy Quaid, who I think you know we were talking about this before we started recording, uh, who is sort of remembered only for his silly roles and for him real life losing his shit in the public sphere but yeah. we forget that you know there was a lot of good stuff that he did early on uh and i wouldn't even see that early it really wasn't until sort of the early 90s that it felt like he had become a caricature of himself uh yeah. he, he he had a lot of strong roles and, and in this movie he's very good i mean you could argue well he just needs to be innocent but i don't think that's true i think he has a few very important moments where he's able to communicate a lot in a movie that is asking a lot of him. So I was, I was pretty impressed by Randy Quaid in this movie. I mean, I've seen him in some strong performances, uh, particularly in the seventies and like midnight express and things like that. I always knew that he was a strong actor, but you're right. There's a point in the early eighties, probably um, after the first national lampoons vacation movie where he becomes a more comedic actor. And he always has kind of a comedic look to him. He is kind of a little bit of pudgy, you know, he's, he just has that face that, that is kind of comic. But because of that, there's also a real sympathy for him. And this is a character that isn't just pure sympathy, right? It's not just, oh, he's innocent and naive. So he's, you know, he's a person who's been, had a hard life. Uh, and, and there is a suggestion that his mother is an alcoholic and maybe things weren't so great for him and that he turns to shoplifting because he's confused and he's just trying to kind of strike out at the world in some way. So he, there, there is a complexity there. But our sympathy has to be with him because he is being punished ridiculously for and and not just for because it's a small crime it's made very clear he was stealing from a charity box for polio and i guess someone high up in the navy uh, his wife is uh, kind of, she focuses on that charity, the polio charity. So she specifically has asked her husband to basically throw the book at this guy. So it's unfair on like a number of different levels what's happening to him. But he gets like no sympathy at all from the people at the base. So the fact that these guys are showing him humanity at all 
uh, especially at the beginning, is is you know it's it's meant to be this really large gesture. Uh, but what I what I really like about the role is that he kind of eases into being comfortable around these guys. It's not it doesn't happen at first. At first they're super skeptical. They're like, we're going to have to go to the head, which is what they call the bathroom, with you every time you go. But you know by the time you get to the to the midpoint of the movie, they trust him enough that he's not going to run away. Of course. <laughs> then near the end of the movie, he does try to run away, but then again, it's it's out of pure desperation. Yeah, there's a sense in which that running away too, it's not clear why he does it. I I, right. I, I wonder to some extent if he's motivated by their uh, uh, pathos about what's going. You know what I mean? Like their, it's almost their emotional turmoil forces him to to do something. You know because that that liminal space that they're in, like we can't not do this, but we don't want to do it. He almost makes it easier for them to just take him by running away, you know, by, yeah. by whatever. Um, I, I will also That's true. say... That's interesting, yeah. I will also say it's worth noting, the beginning of the film, he is a kleptomaniac. Like, he will not yeah. stop stealing things regardless of their worth. So there's some sense for me of, I wonder if he had been stealing things for a while, and this polio thing was just the first thing they could really nail him on in a big yeah. way. Yeah. So Maybe, but might, I mean, these are obviously the kind of, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, nickel, and, nickel and dime things, like not major Oh, sure, things, sure, sure. But, yeah. I, but I think if someone's been an annoyance, you know what I mean? That like that the thing is both like her it's her it's her personal whatever, but also like this dude has a problem and we don't know what to do about his problem. Right. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times when people have because if he is stealing compulsively, that's a mental health issue. You know what I mean? Right. And mm-hmm. so the idea that like we don't know what to do with this crazy person, so we're just gonna send him to the brig for eight years <laughs> is yeah unfortunately very believable and uh seems like something that could easily have happened uh i want to talk a little bit uh, here uh, about a note that you put in here about the the swearing in this movie because apparently we both live in 1950 uh <laughs> so yeah why don't you talk to me about the no-no words yeah. from the movie so this it's funny that that we talked about carnal knowledge which was a game changer for a mainstream movie in terms of frank talk of sexuality and in a similar way, this movie was a game changer in the allowance of the amount of swearing in it. Make no mistake, Robert Town wrote this movie for Jack Nicholson because they're good friends. And it's a good thing he did because this movie would not be made without the help of a star. And Jack Nicholson at this point was becoming a big star. And so he was able to push this through uh, because they wanted Robert Town to cut out like a huge chunk of the swearing. At the time this movie came out, there's more fucks in this movie than any movie that had ever been released. Um, and so like this and by a significant amount, this movie is very coarse. People talk like people talk in real life. Uh, I think Robert Town even said it's like when when people are frustrated because they can't change things, they bitch. And that's what these guys are doing in the movie. They are complaining and they are complaining in as coarse a way possible. The funny thing about it is watching it now. It's not that it isn't coarse. There is a lot of swearing in this and you notice it. But. It just does seem kind of realistic. This is exactly the kind of thing these people would say out of frustration. And it's not that different than what you hear in a lot of movies now. But this is a movie that kind of broke the mold in regards to that. I mean, people talk all the time about about the 70s and cinema and the barriers that were broken during it. It's It's kind of amazing to think that Jack Nicholson was at the cusp of, you know... Easy Rider and Carnal Knowledge and uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and this movie here, The Last Detail. 
And he was a huge part of breaking down those barriers, not just him as a performer, but in the relationships that he had, right? He was good friends with Roman Polanski. He was good friends with Robert Town. He's good friends with Robert Evans. You know, this is the kind of thing where whatever you think of a lot of those people, and there's 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 room for conversation there as well, that that it was Jack Nicholson at the core of this and his marketability that allowed these goalposts to shift. So, you know, when you see a movie where people are saying fuck constantly, hey, you can thank the last detail for that because uh, it was able to shift those boundaries and, and made it marketable, even though this movie was not a huge financial success because it won so many awards and because it was such a high-profile movie. It's, it's funny. It's, it, it's just with, uh, with carnal knowledge, people went to see it just because that was something that you never saw, people talking about sexuality like that. Bet you a lot of people went to see the last details just to see someone say fuck. It's possible. I think that's probably true. I mean, I, I will say too. We were talking a little about Randy Quaid. I think uh, I don't think we have a lot of Generation Z listeners, but if we did, <laughs> it would be really interesting for them uh, to see this movie. Since if they even know who Jack Nicholson is, it's probably the guy asleep in the front row at the Lakers game with his gut hanging out of his nice shirt. Like that's he's become a meme of of just this like deteriorating man. You know, uh, who's only known for making a spectacle of himself at basketball games. And you don't realize, like, he was on the cutting edge of culture. He was one of the most, yeah. you know, and, and I think you could have lost sight of that even, you know, in the later 80s and 90s when it felt like, you know, what, what, what did you call it earlier? The the witches of Eastwick period um, <laughs> it, it, where it felt like, like, oh, yeah, he's fun. Jack Nicholson, he's a funny guy. It's like, uh eh. He's not just a caricature. He's not just goofy. He's, he's not just a guy who yells. He was, at this point in his career, one of the most important people acting, you know? Yeah. And, and was constantly on the cutting edge of everything he did was the next level thing. And so the excitement that he brought, and, and I think in some ways, even when you think about well, some of the movies he did later that maybe you don't love, uh, uh, that maybe aren't so cutting edge, it's important to remember he could do those things because people remembered him as being yeah. so important and so crazy and so edgy. And uh, and so, like, you know, yeah, it's easy to make fun now. Like, literally just the other day, he he was asleep at the Lakers game and the, <laughs> the bottom three buttons of his shirt had popped open so his stomach was hanging out. And it's like, oh, look at this guy. And, uh, you know, if you've only seen the pictures on Twitter, then, yeah, sure, you, you, can, you can laugh or whatever. But... It's it'd be really hard to laugh after watching a movie like this, uh, and, and really seeing. I mean, he's amazing in this role. So Liam, I gotta say, I love Jack Nicholson. Like, I really love him as an actor. Yeah. Even even those shitty roles that you're talking about, I love. I actually love him as this deteriorating star. Of as course well. you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I really, I just, it. He's so fascinating to me. You know, starting with the Roger Corman stuff, becoming part of the counterculture, writing Head of all fucking things, Easy Rider, into this. I mean. He's not the most handsome guy in the world, right? He's very much a 70s kind of celebrity. The fact that he was able to maintain that in a way that almost all those other 70s stars, right? Peter Fina couldn't do it. Fucking Ellie Gould couldn't do it. These are big stars of the 70s that were making all of these major movies. Jack Nicholson just waltzed in the 80s. He's like, I'm going to take this decade. Then he waltzed in the 90s. I'm going to take this, right? He was just, he just has so much of something in him. But and I, I guess it is star power or some. And yeah, you look, he he <laughs> he did not 
use his talents well as time went on all the time. Though I think there are still some strong performances in his later years as well. But I, there's just something about him that I love to watch. But that's also exactly what you're saying. The fact that I love to watch him meant that he could rest on the cliches afterwards. That that, that I mean, when you think of of his performance as the Joker, and I know a lot of people love that performance, that they hired him to be Jack Nicholson as the Joker, and that is exactly what right. he gave them. He he didn't give them anything more interesting. He didn't right. They gave him basically his performance here as the Joker, right? Except that, except you know, kind of boiled down to the essentials of just unpredictability and laughing constantly. I mean, he he is a nuanced actor and has given a lot of nuanced performances, but I think a lot of that nuance got kind of rubbed away as he didn't need to rely on those anymore. Well, I think it's true, too, that culture moves so fast that I I guess my fascination would be less with someone our age who had, you know, an opinion on Jack Nicholson because I, I just think, like, we're of an age and people older than us that you should remember the legacy. You know what I mean? But I, I just wonder how many younger people have no clue. It's kind of like the, yeah. the Henry Rollins effect, right? It's really hard to convince younger punks that Henry Rollins is cool because all they know is Henry Rollins now, which is like right. to them an embarrassing old man who like, they're like, why does anyone care what this man has to say? And you have to say, well, for a long time, though, he was the coolest. And people were like, no, that couldn't possibly be true. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, even telling people, like, you know Henry Rollins was one of the first people in punk that got a lot of tattoos. That wasn't cool. People were like, that can't be true. And it's, no, it is true, though. It's just a fact. You know, like, he, you know, him and him and Thurston Moore were some of the first punk record collectors ever. You know what I mean? Like, the the, 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 the reality is, like, the, this happens all the time that, like, the current version of someone, for you, when you know the longer picture of their career, it's part of the tapestry. It all comes sure. together. And in some ways, it makes it charming. When I see him the viral video of him yelling at a hipster in a bar, I just think, oh, Henry, it's all part of the sandwich. <laughs> but I can see why a younger person's like, who is this embarrassing old man? And why does he think anyone cares what he thinks? Well, he's Henry Rollins, you know? And it'd be easy for to, to, to just condemn the person for being ignorant. But I think in the case of Jack Nicholson, all I would say is, if you aren't familiar with these early roles, which I'm sure there might even be people closer to our age who aren't familiar with all of his really groundbreaking work, do it. Like, get, get, you know, see the last detail and don't let it just be like, well, you know, I saw him in that old people falling in love movie in the 2000s, so I understand who Jack Nicholson is. Like, that's not... I mean, it, it's very much like Al Pacino, right? I mean, right, exactly, right? exactly. One of the great actors of all time. But when people think of Al Pacino now, they just think of him as, you know, a big ass, that sort of thing, right? Oh, like God. just the, these perform these these kind of not just cliches, but like um, almost like parodies of himself. Uh, and it, it's funny that both of them fell into Adam Sandler movies at at one yep, point as yep, well. Yep. Um, it's just one of those things, I guess. And and I mean, De Niro is like it as well. It, it, I don't. I think a lot of people chalk it up to laziness. I don't necessarily think that's the case. It's just, boy, who could, who has the energy to give a performance like Jack Nicholson does in this movie? It's not. That's not laziness. There's just no way that an older person could do it anymore. It would be. Um, okay, we should we should move on a little bit here. Uh, so here's something I wasn't aware of. There's a sequel to this movie in, or at least there's a sequel to the book. Right? Is that true, Doug? S- 
So, yeah, so Last Flag Flying, which is a movie that came out a couple of years ago, uh, directed by Richard Linklater, was – Linklater wrote the screenplay with Daryl Poniskan, which is supposed to be a follow-up um, kind of – it's it, like with the same characters uh, to the last detail. And that movie has Lawrence Fishburne, Steve Carell, and Brian Cranston as these three characters instead. I have not seen it. Uh, it kind of came and went without a lot of fanfare. I remember just started showing up – on streaming services, which is kind of weird. Richard Linklater is such an interesting director where he'll do these huge hits and huge mainstream movies, and then he'll do something like this is still a, like Last Fight Flying was still a very mainstream movie with big Hollywood stars, but like, you know, Boyhood wasn't that long ago, and then, then he'll do something like this, which gets almost no attention. I guess it's just the reality of being as prolific as he is. Well, I think but, people, uh, people just get confused. They're like, wait, so the guy who did the before trilogy did the Bad News Bears? That doesn't sound yeah. right. Yeah. And right? it's like, no, it is. It's school of Rock, it, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, school. So you're telling me that School of Rock and everybody gets, or everybody wants some? Everybody yeah. wants some. It's the same dude. And that dude also did that weird murder movie with uh, Jack Black. Yeah. yeah. It's the same guy. And it, it, I just think, except for people who love him, in general, uh, society doesn't know what to do with Richard Linklater. <laughs> He's exactly the kind of director I do like in the sense that he keeps you guessing and he obviously has a lot of interest that he wants to pursue and has the talent to pursue it. That said, there's I love a lot of his movies and there are some of his movies that – it's not like I hate them, but it's just like they do nothing at all for me. Which ones? Which ones do nothing at all for you? Uh – the ones I'm thinking of specifically, I actually, I'm maybe one of the people who still really love Boyhood, but like the Newton Boys, I don't know if you've ever seen that. Me and Orson Welles, I didn't like it all. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't like Fast Food Nation very much at all. Uh, and his Bad okay. News Bears remake, I didn't really dig. I hated at, Bad at News all. Bears. That's a bad movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that said, Bernie, the one that you were referring to, the Jack Black murder yeah, movie, yeah. I love that movie. It's I think so that's an good. amazing movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know that's interesting. And you know, if if Carol Kane was in it, we would probably cover it, but she's not. So, uh, which brings us, of course, to the reason we have this podcast, which is not to pull apart the <laughs> dichotomy of Jack Nicholson's career, but actually discuss the work of the actress known as Carol Kane, who <laughs> is in this movie. In fact, you could argue that she is uh, one of only two significant female characters in the entire <laughs> film. Uh, and in, and in, in my view is maybe more significant than the other uh, female character in the, in the film. Um, Doug, what did now, you... Now, now, you say that, Liam, but we should mention that there are almost no important characters except for our three main characters. That's true. That's uh, true. That's true. Uh, so so uh, what were you going to ask? What did you think of Carol Kane in this film? So I was worried um, after Wedding in White that this movie, because we're moving back to, you know, a, a larger Hollywood production, that... As we were like, I was watching this and we we're three quarters of the way through and she wasn't there. I was like, she's going to show up for one scene in the background and, and have no dialogue. And what are we even going to talk about? She actually is in this movie in a crucial role. So she plays a prostitute. There's a part, as we've already referred to, that these three characters, they end up in Boston. Uh, they get a cabbie to bring them to a bordello. And the whole point of it is that they're going to get Randy Quaid uh, to lose his virginity to a prostitute. And it's it's an interesting moment because it's played very sympathetically. Even if Carol Kane's prostitute character is very detached, he picks her out of a group. She's obviously very visible. Carol Kane, you you'll always notice Carol Kane in a group scene. She has that very distinctive look. 
Um, and he they they go into the room together. He of course ejaculates almost immediately, uh, and then has a, another round. And as you probably would expect, also he, I don't know if you would say he falls in love with her, but he, whether it's out of desperation, whether it's out of the fact that it's his first experience. That he, you know, he caresses her and he says, you know, I don't have much money left, but I'll give it to you if I can just look at you, that sort of thing. And it's not that she (laughs) – the movie doesn't go into that cliché territory where she might be in any way smitten with him. But I think she at least – you can see on her face that she thinks he's somewhat sweet, right? Like there's something very genuine in what he's doing. So there isn't a lot to her performance. It's very kind of of matter-of-fact. But the fact that it's matter-of-fact is what makes it interesting. She isn't – so, yeah, she seems done with it uh, as as a prostitute, but she doesn't seem angry or sad necessarily. This is just her job, and she does it very kind of confidently. She she takes him by the hand and walks him through it. But I will say, for me watching it, it's still even though I think her performance is really strong in in this small role, it's super uncomfortable to watch just because the roles that we've seen her in so far, which again were just in the couple of years before this came out, she was playing such young characters, right, like high school or like just after high school age characters. And here, not only is she playing a prostitute, she also has she's there's topless nudity in it, which actually I was not expecting. Um, and so there is a discomfort there, which probably is not intentional. Uh, outside of you know the discomfort that maybe some might have in regards to sex work anyway, but I do think that that moment is very crucial for Randy Quaid um, and and where his character is at that moment and where he thinks he's going to go next. So I think she's great in a very difficult role, and I'm glad that she had a moment that she can kind of shine in this movie. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. I think. Uh... It's really impressive. I mean, I was a little less uncomfortable because we had talked about this early on in that interview with Mark Maron. She talked about Jack Nicholson helping her out with a nude scene that she had. Oh, that's right. That's right. And I, we kept thinking, well, what movie is she with Jack Nicholson where she's a nude scene? And clearly it was this one. So I kind of realized like, oh, it's got to be this movie. So it's got to happen at some point. And then when she showed up, I was like, definitely happening. You know what I mean? Um, so I wasn't that caught by surprise. But I will say... At this time in her life, I'm not surprised she was being asked to play so many young roles. She she looks young. So, you know, it's a little off-putting to be like, oh, right, she's in her 20s. This is not weird. Right. This is a normal thing because, you know, she, she did seem uh, younger at the time. Uh, but I will also agree, you know... Like, like I said it in a way that was maybe sounded like a like a diss, but you know there are two important female roles in this film uh, that are that are very important, uh, and both actresses I think do a great job. But I think this role is even more pivotal. That if it wasn't handled right, even though it seems small, if it wasn't handled right, it would it would not have worked for the movie. And I think she is great in this. You know, she is both understanding but also not starry-eyed you know she's not yes. holding his hand in a metaphorical sense even though she's literally holding his hand she's still kind of real with him but she has to do it in a way where you 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 know that you're still going to like care about her character she's not going to be humorous she's not going to be like joking or or mean to him you know but she's also not going to be smitten with some silly boy who comes through you know Right, right. Yeah, weary, I think, would be the word I would use, right. which makes it, you know, not necessarily sad, but certainly, you know, it's funny, when they come into the, the bordello, 
she is just, you know, a man is leaving that she was just with, so she probably is pretty tired with the whole thing already. Right. Um, but but you know, it, there's a when he chooses her from the group of women, Jack Nicholson's character says, you know, you chose well. That's the one I would have chose, and he did choose well because maybe his first experience there wouldn't be someone as sympathetic or understanding. Or I, I say that when when you know there's still that moment of she has to say, hey. Whether it takes ten seconds or ten hours, the the cost is the same, and then they have to pay for basically another round. This is still a business, but the way that she acts, particularly after their second time together, I do think that that they uh, they show an element of humanity that would be rare for a character like that at the time. Well, and it's a reminder for me both of those performances about what to what extent is this film about manhood, generally speaking. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I say the film, it's probably the novel as well, that it's about um, not just the system, about being a soldier, about being very likely a soldier who comes from poverty or other circumstances. You know, uh, Randy Quaid's character is from Camden. It's not exactly an, a thriving city, even at this point. Um, and and all that stuff but i think underneath all that is also a question about masculinity and it comes up in subtle ways and this is one of those times where uh i think part of what's going on here is a question around gender and sexuality and absolutely uh, and it's and it's you know uh, i think how ashby from what i've seen touches on these sorts of things all the time and maybe it's less obvious to people because he doesn't necessarily make one point he just it's just part of the milieu of the story storytelling i don't know but anyways i thought that i thought that moment was great and i did not feel like you know again the whole movie's great but as a carol kane podcast we could get frustrated we could be like all right sure. well that well, didn't feel worth the time but this was definitely like no that was worth the time and it's probably a, an important moment for her career to be in a movie like this with jack nicholson where she's actually in a memorable role Absolutely, yeah. Especially, you know, she has that that one scene in Carnal Knowledge, but it's you know it's pretty incredible to think that just a couple of years later, <laughs> I feel a little weird saying, "Look where she is now," as if you know, moving from a silent performance for one scene in that movie to now playing a prostitute here in this movie, it pr- probably seems somewhat lateral. But I mean, she does get a showcase here, and it probably wasn't incredibly important for her career. Because it's amazing to think that her very next performance, not including that little TV bit that we talked about at the very beginning, though even that's kind of interesting, right? In that TV program, she's going to be silent for four seconds at the beginning of it. A year after the making of this movie, she's going to be nominated for an Academy Award. Right, right. That that there's still going to be people who understandably, justifiably don't know who she is before she's nominated. You know, and yeah. so that I think that's really worth acknowledging you know yeah i mean i think it'll probably seem to a lot of people that she came out of nowhere especially because it's not just like a supporting performance you know i mean i guess we could talk about it now since we're going to be talking about it on the next episode hester street from 1975 is what's coming next yeah and carol kane will be nominated for best actress at the academy awards for that very controversial movie yeah, I don't know anything about it. I know it's controversial. I know her nomination was controversial. Uh, and I know nothing about the movie. So I'm really excited to cover it on our next episode. Um, it's apparently directed by Joan Micklin Silver. <laughs> apparently directed by? <laughs> uh, I'm just seeing it here. I mean, I know so little about it that I don't know who's in it. I don't know anything about it. 
I know it's about Jewish immigrants. Uh, I know that it was uh, added to the National Film Registry, and I know that, kind of quite notably, the critic John Simon described it as, quote-unquote, totally inept. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm excited uh, to see uh, Carol Kane in a starring role, and I'm excited to see why everyone <laughs> has issues with this movie. So uh, come back for our next episode for, for, for that conversation. Uh, Doug, if they're interested in some of the other conversations, episodes, shows, things we do here, Cinema Smorgasbord, how, how would they find more? Well, you can find the latest episode of Cinema Smorgasbord at cinepunks.com, as well as a array of very interesting and unique podcasts. But if you just want to check out more about Cinema Smorgasbord, uh, you can go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, and over there, you can leave us uh, feedback. You can subscribe to us on various podcast services. If you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes, we'd appreciate that very much. Cinema Smorgasbord is a umbrella of different themed podcasts, including ones devoted to actors as diverse as Jackie Chan, Vic Diaz, uh, Steve Buscemi, and of course, Carol Kane and others why don't you check out all the podcasts over there if you want to check us out on social media you can do a search on facebook for cinema smorgasbord or we're on twitter as well at cinema smorg s-m-o-r-g you can also follow me on twitter at liam rules r-u-l-z or doug on twitter at doug underscore tilly that's t-i-l-l E-Y. That's absolutely correct, Liam. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, We look forward to you joining us back here for a discussion of Hester Street on our next episode. And, you know, tell someone about the show. Let them know why you love it so much. Let them know why, even though Doug is the most annoying person you've ever heard in your life, you still keep listening every episode. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good night, everybody. All right. Good night. (laughs) 